Asia. And this evening's event is a concrete step in fostering a closer relationship between the peoples of Iran and the United States by getting beyond the headlines and stereotypes that have been so overriding of our nations over the last 20 years. As, an, as is often the case, fiction writers and journalists can eloquently reveal much about the inner workings of complex societies such as Iran. We are also delighted to have Susan Sontag, as well as other noted New York-based scholars and writers, to lead a discussion with our Iranian guests, as well as read from their works in translation. So we have a great program ahead of you this evening. Uh, now please join me in welcoming Mr. Michael Roberts, Executive Director of Penn American Center. Michael. Thank you, Lyndon. As Penn's Executive Director, I'm delighted to welcome our distinguished guests and all of you for this historic occasion. We're celebrating what I believe is the first visit to the United States by an organized group of literary writers from Iran in the 20 years since the Iranian Revolution. We're grateful to the Asia Society and to the Department of Middle Eastern and Asian Languages and Cultures at Columbia University for helping to make this evening possible, and to friends and supporters of Penn for helping to make the visit of our Iranian guests a reality. In 1881, Walt Whitman wrote to his German translator that his dearest dream was for an internationality of poems and poets binding the lands of the earth closer than all treaties in diplomacy. This uh, visionary dream of a greater commonwealth of letters transcending national divisions came a step closer to reality in 1921 with the establishment of PEN, originally Poets, Essayists, and Novelists, an effort by writers of many lands to build an international organization on the basis of the principles that literature knows no borders and should remain common currency between nations, and that writers should use their influence in favor of good understanding and mutual respect between nations. Penn American Center, as one of the founding centers of international Penn, has worked for 77 years to advance these principles. Few members of our center have expended more time and energy in more difficult and dangerous locations around the globe than the first of our moderators tonight, one of our most eminent members and a former president of Penn, Susan Sontag. Also moderating tonight will be one of the foremost Iranian literary critics now a visiting professor of literature at Johns Hopkins University, who will introduce our other guests. Join me in welcoming, please, Professor Azar Nafisi. I always have trouble with the microphone. I think I left one behind, going towards the other one. It's a great privilege to be here. and. I feel very much at home because I always felt that my world is a portable world when I'm in Iran. I carry the lights and shades of this country and its words and literature with me and when I'm here, I do the same and now my two worlds have landed here in this place and I would like to thank Penn, Columbia University and Asia Society for this. I'm supposed to be here to give you a very, very brief introduction of the writers who are here. Um, whom through different stages of my life I have uh, sort of made, it, made acquaintances with and sometimes have become estranged from uh, at different points. And uh, it is a great honor to be introducing them. I'm not introducing them. I'm just going to very briefly just tell you what their name is, 
where they come from. They will be do, doing the main introduction. Um, uh, Mahmoud Dolat Abadi is one of Iran's most uh, distinguished living novelists. Uh, he's the writer of Jai Khali Soluch and Kelidar, that is a renowned 10-volume uh, no novel. Uh, he's supposed to be very well known for the kind of epic language and epic incidents that he uses in his novels. Shahriyar uh, Mandanipur, I'm beginning with sort of the oldest and the youngest. Shahriyar Oldest, not in age. <laughs> you age well anyway. <laughs> he loves threats. Shahriyar um, Mandanipur is um, the youngest, one of the new generations. He started writing his works after the revolution. And um, he has, he's both an acclaimed uh, short story writer. He has also written uh, novels. And he is also the editor of uh, a magazine called um, Thursday Evenings. He will tell you why this enigmatic title himself, maybe. Uh, Jawad Mojabi is a humorist, novelist, and journalist. He just uh, recently has finished a biography of our foremost living Iranian poet, Ahmad Shamlu. Um, and uh, well, he has also worked, uh, he has also written a great deal of criticism, both of um, literary works as well as uh, paintings. Muhammad Ali Sepanlu, as, as I talk about him, I remember the first time I sat down there and listened to his poetry. Uh, he's prominent poem and anthologist. He also has written um, a history of uh, the foremost prominent poets of uh, Con Iran's constitutional revolution. He is the author of 12 books of poetry, and he is particularly known for his lyric and epic poems. Um, well, here are writers. One of the... Uh no, I would say one. The great uh, revelation for uh, people who uh, love film, love movies, serious movies, movies as an art form, uh, in the past 10 years has been Iranian cinema. It, uh, it's a marvel. There are many, many great Iranian filmmakers and there's a, a very uh, old cinema tradition in Iran as befits uh, a major country with a very profound culture, which is uh, what Iran is before 1979 and since 1979, stretching back many, many centuries. Anyway, uh, the great discovery for people who care about films, uh, more than any single director or work coming from any country, was the surprise, and perhaps that was naive that we were surprised, was the surprise of this uh, fantastic, great body of work, which is now extremely well known around the world. Iranian films play in uh, the major uh, capitals where there is a serious movie-going audience. It's uh, 
box office boffo in Paris, which is probably the cinephile capital of the world. They even play in little old New York, and they're always featured in the New York Film Festival, and they have, as I say, been a revelation. There are many great, world-class, amazing um, Iranian directors. It's a great body of work, and nothing has happened more exciting in film uh, than, than the revelation of the work of Iranian filmmakers. So we do know something about Iran besides the reductive um, political cliches, uh, something about contemporary Iranian culture. We are, however, I of course speak for myself, but I think I speak for most people I would suppose in this audience who are not readers of Farsi. We are uh, lamentably uh, ignorant of Iranian literature. Uh, either because it hasn't been translated into English or other languages that we may read, or because it isn't properly distributed in those languages. So I just want to begin with that, uh, that point, that it is, of course, a great uh, privilege and a very important event to have these writers, which is the beginning of a more three-dimensional uh, picture of Iran for, I think, many of us. <coughs> سانتک فهمیدن که من خلاصه میگم البته حرف که خیلی فیلم های مخصوصا در سالهای اخیر فیلم های بسیار زیبا و درخشان ایرانی هستند که در سراسر سر دنیا معروفن در پاریس و حالا در شهر نیویورک هم و این فیلم های ایرانی باعث شدن که اون چیزهایی رو که ما کیشه هایی رو که ما راجع به ایران میدونیم رو تا حدی بشکنن ولی متاسفانه ما درباره ادبیات ایران زیاد نمیدونیم و یا به خاطر عدم ترجمه آثار نویسندگان ایرانی و یا به خاطر عدم پخش درست آثار اونها و امشب این یه امتیاز بزرگیه که استادان ادب ایران را فیلم perhaps passes more easily into other cultures and other languages because there is simply the question of subtitling, whereas a book uh, must be translated, must be published, uh, and uh, there has to be some kind of context for receiving these writers and some context of, of uh, information, of curiosity, of goodwill, of, of, of a tradition of being interested. All of this, of course, we lack. We living in the United States, uh, we who are basically readers of literature in English, we, we are very, very ignorant. Uh, so I, I think that one of the things that is, that's wonderful about this evening is we are going to find out about these writers, we're going to be more interested in them, we are going to look for them in translation because I've learned uh, from Professor Nafisi that in fact they are translated, um, uh, though their books have to be ordered rather than are likely to be found in, in, in bookstores. And I would like to um, direct some of my questions, and I hope their responses, to what the situation of writers is now in Iran, and specifically the different uh, genres that they practice. When I hear them described, and I, I, I must again repeat, I am totally ignorant of these writers. I have not read them. I will read them now. I make a point of reading them and finding them in English or in a couple of other languages I can make my way in. But uh, I don't know their work. I just know the description of their work. But I'm impressed by the various kinds of 
activities that they have, which is a rather old-fashioned idea of a writer. It's, by the way, an idea that very much inspired me when I decided to become a writer, that you work in many forms. You're a short story writer, you're a poet, you're a novelist, you're a playwright, you're an essayist, you're a journalist, um, whatever, a film writer, a script writer. Uh, this is a, a sort of traditional, heroic idea of the writer. And I, I gather that all the writers here um, have that uh, uh, vision of themselves as working in many forms. خانم سانتاگ ایداشون که فیلم بهتر از کتاب به زبان‌های در فرهنگ‌های مختلف برگردون میشه یا ترجمه میشه ولی خب کتاب باید هم ترجمه بشه و هم یک چارچوبی که از سنت و زبان و نیات و اهداف خوب هستش مخلوطی ملغمه از اینها باید وجود داشته بشه تا کتاب رو بشه به اصطلاح برگردونش کرد به یک فرهنگ دیگه و خوشحالم که امشب بیشتر راجع به شما خواهند دونست میگن که امشب فهمیدن که خیلی از کتاب های نویسندگان ایرانی به انگلیسی ترجمه شده ولی خب به صلاح من مذرد میخوام که روم این بره در حقیقت قلبم با شماست و ولی از امشب امیدوارن که بیشتر آشنا بشن مسئله سوالی رو که دارن و نکته ای که در باره شما تر کردن یکی این که فعالیت های مختلفی که شما دیدن که شما در یک زمینه در حقیقت فعال نیستین در زمینه های مختلفی فعال هستین و این به اصطلاح یک تعریف کلاسیک به نوعی یا سنتی اگر به معنای غلطش نگیریم از نویسنده از حالت قهرمانی یک نویسنده هستش که در زمینه های مختلف کار میکنن میخواستم بدونن که موقعیت نویسندگان ایران در امروز چی هست و ژانرهای متفاوتی که در ادبیات امروز به کار برده میشه is that the question you had no that's the prelude the next question is given that the question is given that they practice all these forms so that's a tendency of an ambitious writer do they feel uh, well, let me backtrack a minute ago. Uh, we talk about writing, this is very much the idea of pen, that writing is an international activity, mm. that, that writers essentially don't uh, know any borders, yeah. that all writers have fellowship with each other. Of course that's true as an ideal, but we know also that people are separated, uh, writing, communities of writers are separated. They're separated by isolation, they're separated by provincialism, they're separated by politics, and the deformations of politics, and they are separated by the distinctive literary traditions that grow up in different cultures. That being said, because um, I'm hearing this in English, of course, I'm not hearing the Farsi words, uh, do they feel, for instance, that the novel is as much a tradition in Iranian literature and literature written in Farsi as it is in the European languages. Because as I'm sure many of you know, it's often said that the novel is essentially a European invention. And of course, people in Asian uh, languages and other, and other cultures in Africa and so on have learned to write, um, to, to write novels, but th that they don't have the novel as part of their tradition. Then they do have. Storytelling, poetry, of course, essays, etc., but not the novel. So let's start with a purely literary question. If they feel 
somehow those of them that write novels and of course they all read novels if it's really a farsi tradition a, a tradition in their literary culture Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I prepared my request to very short outlines of the uh, uh, some subjects, which was uh, one title, possible nuclear cooperation between South Asia and Japan, and the second one is Japan's nuclear energy policy. And uh, I understand that. The, just I would like to make a very brief comment on the paper which uh, entitled us possible nuclear cooperation between South Asia and Japan. Is it correct? Okay. Uh, and uh, well, as a tradition of the Japanese speech, you know, the people should uh, begin with uh, some sort of the approaches. That is, uh, I don't know why Japanese tradition. And uh, uh, I am Japanese. Therefore, that I start saying something like that. This is very brief, and uh, uh, I didn't prepare so well. Uh, so maybe there is a shortcomings. But, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, I will wait. Of discussion. But the, uh, when making this outline, um, no, uh, I would like to be that, um, very objective um, uh, and uh, sort of the analytical of way. And therefore, that my explanation is rather different from my friend Dr. Miniel Khan. And his explanation is called a vivid, and my explanation might be very monotonous. But excuse me. Uh, the first I thought about the, what of kind of the uh, measures to be used for the uh, nuclear cooperation as a whole. And we, uh, I categorized and one is a bilateral measure, other one is a regional, and third one is international measures. That is the first one, two, three. And uh, some examples, always I gave this here as uh, some examples. For example, in Japan, <laughs> he says, I, the, uh, he says I just, I was just. Governmental nuclear cooperation. <laughs> ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、
Um, those uh, and, are, you know, we, we, we say that the that, uh, science and technology cooperation agreement, the science and technology field of science and technology include nuclear energy, nuclear energy, nuclear technology. Therefore, there's some sort of the cooperation can be done within this type of the cooperation agreement between two governments, but does not count the transfer of nuclear material or sensitive technologies. Those two types, of course, not only government, but public cooperation or even private industries are various types of bilateral cooperation. We have two several examples, but I don't want to name. Uh, uh, the second one is a regional measures, and there, you know, already some of the, uh, the U.S. people in the Pakistan uh, deferred about IAES RCA activities, regional cooperation activities, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, most famous one is in Asia, region, and India, Pakistan, of course, Japan, and some other Asian countries are party to this uh, regional cooperation agreement. Uh, by the way, IAES has other uh, regional cooperation agreement, one in Africa, other one in Latin America. However, you know, out of those three RCS, uh, Asian one is most uh, active. In this century, in and uh, I just checked, you know, the more than 20 uh, projects is inactive, now, now active, and a uh, major part of that, I, uh, both of India and Pakistan are party to uh, those RCS uh, uh, subjects. The second one is um, just uh, the brief remark on Japan Atomic Energy Commission's efforts. Uh, every year, uh, JAEC is organizing the annual conference and inviting Asian people uh, to attend. And uh, within this framework, there are four, sub four areas, uh, medical use, agricultural use, um, public uh, acceptance, and uh, research reactors. I remember those four, maybe the fifth one, I don't, uh, I don't remember, but those are, you know, the regional cooperation, regional cooperation are going on. This kind of development can be categorized regional measures. Of course, there are a lot of international cooperation, nuclear cooperation. The major one is IAEA, but maybe the other kind of international bodies can do it. This is in the government level. International body is concerned, IAEA and so on, but also the private industry levels, like Urenco, Eurotech, those are, of course, European. Cases, but we can, we can think of this kind of regional uh, cooperation amongst uh, um, the enterprises. And I would like to point out one or is one of the cooperation, which is um, international. However, you know, international co cooperative body, which is composed by mostly utilities. <laughs> um, number four is just uh, enumerated. Some of the examples of the uh, areas of cooperation. There, um, there, of course, um, some of the area is very difficult, and some area is much easier to do it. And uh, just I, uh, just I enumerate those one, uh, multinational enterprises, just I explained. Regional field cycle center, this concept is um, uh, frequently discussed after the initial activities. Cooperation on operation of nuclear facilities, one or is, one is doing uh, in, uh, internationally. Regulatory activities, uh, nuclear safety aspect, transport regulations, even uh, non-proliferation nuclear safeguards, uh, it's a kind of the regulation, so we could, uh, we could discuss. 
about the coordination or harmonization of those activities. In general, research and development is the most easy part of the cooperation to do. Policy discussions, of course, this is very important. And public acceptance, and I, you know, I should, I should include, but it is not included here. Is a training and education. The number one, number. خب اجازه بدین من اینو مخصوص اینه که اثری که نویسنده ایرانی درست میکنه بهش تحمیل نشده باشه یا تحمیل نه یک چیزایی که به داستان تحمیل میشه از بیرون مثلا تکنیک به قولیشون فرم مثلا یا این چیزایی که اخذ میکنه از خارج هنوز از خودش نکرده He says that there is really no real difference between an Iranian novel or an Irish novel or a novel to in any uh, he, he was trying to clarify what Mr. Sepanlu was saying, uh, saying that uh, there are two points here. One is that um, uh, the, what, what an Iranian writer cre creates um, uh, is sometimes under the influence of, uh, the forms are under the influence of um, other parts of the world, or the form might have been imposed upon it from the outside. It has not been internalized. And the second point, the emphasis is um, to create a work of fiction that would be closer to the spirit of uh, what we call Iran, to the Iranian spirit. And in 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 اونایی که ما میشناسیم مثلا فاگنر به گمان من یک جان امریکاییه یعنی یک جان انسان این نیمه اول این قرنه uh, he says that he feels that this is something that um, any writer from any part of the world uh, would do and he says that he feels that the american writers specifically have done this very well and he feels that faulkner would be sort of the spirit of what you call American. And in this regard, we can understand these writers because they are one of the spirit of the world. We can accept these writers to ourselves. We can welcome them because they become one with the universal spirit. In this regard, there is no real literature so there is no real literature without it being a universal literature. To think of humanity, to think of man, and to create... And to create within its specific locality or he says we have no chauvinistic point of view about uh, storytelling. Mm, we have stories which are created in Ireland, in Turkey, in Iran, or in other parts of the world. Well, <laughs> I mean, in our sense of literature, literature is um, a pluralistic, 
polyphonic enterprise, you may say that you find Faulkner uh, typically American, but Hemingway is typically American, yes. and they are absolute opposites as writers in their temperament, in their morality, in their technique, and so on. And yet they're both American. So we, we are very comfortable uh, with diversity and with uh, finding quite different things equally representative of whatever this culture stands for. Um, the, I, I, I guess what I really, I, I, I mean, I, what I think, I sense, however, is that the role of the writer is quite different um, in Iran than here, among other reasons. There are many reasons, some of them all too obvious. But um, one of the reasons is you don't have a very developed uh, commercial mass culture as that we have here, which has actually drained off uh, a, a lot of the readership of, uh, for, for serious literature. Um, reading uh, serious fiction, is uh, there are fewer readers now. I mean, there are lots of people who read, but there are not so many people who are committed to reading and that, as they have other distractions now. And, and is it true that you have a, a large audience that if you are a popular writer in Iran of a high literary quality, you can still have a very large audience. Uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming that that is correct. I, in, I know in Russia, in the Soviet Union, uh, before, uh, I, I know specifically I tell you about a writer who I admire very much and is a friend of mine, Tatyana Tolstaya, uh, a Russian short story writer who lives here. She said that in her, in, before 1989, her books sold hundreds of thousands of copies in the Soviet Union. And after 89, when they got all the garbage, television and everything else, went down to 20, 30,000 copies. Of course. For each book, yeah. So you, you haven't had this catastrophe, this cultural catastrophe yet. You have your own cultural catastrophes. Uh, but am I to assume then you have a real large audience, all of you? And that there are, a literary magazine was mentioned Thursday evening, Thursday. I would like to hear about that. Is there also a, a, a flourishing magaz culture of, of, of magazines, of literary magazines where people can read fiction and poetry? همونقدر آمریکاییه که فاکنر ولی خب در دو جهت کاملا متفاوت و متضاد حتی پیش میرن به خاطر اینکه خب این یه فرهنگه که خیلی راحته با تنوع حالا میخواستن بدونن که آیا نقش نویسنده در ایران یک نقش متفاوتیه میگن که در آمریکا به خاطر فرهنگ مصرفی تودهی طوری شده که ادبیات جدی زیاد بهش توجهی نمیشه یا خونده نمیشه یا مخاطبی به اون نوع نداره و نویسند خواننده ها کمتر شدن برای ادبیات جدی آیا این درسته که شما یک مخاطبین وسیعی دارین در ایران به عنوان نویسنده های و مثال روسیه رو آوردن که قبل از نویسنده ها خیلی به اصطلاح محبوب بودن و بعد از سال 1989 که فرهنگ مصرفی و تلویزیون آمد این متفاوت شد البته میتونین توضیح بدین که بیواچ ما در ایران همه تماشا میکنه <تصفيق>
We all watch Baywatch in Iran. It's the most popular television show. و بعد آقای مندنی پور میخواستن راجع به روزنامه عصر پنجشنبه هم بدونن. حالا میخوایم که آقای مجابی و آقای مندنی پور هم صحبت کنن. Then we'll go. من تجربه شخصی خودم میخوام بگم و به یه نحوی این تجربه رب بدم به تجربه عمومی که تو جامعه ما میگذره من قبل از انقلاب داستان کوتاه می نوشتم و شعر, و شعر. خب گاهی هم روزنامه نگاری بعد از انقلاب وقایی تو جامعه ما اعتباق افتاد که به نظر میسید ما دقیق تر باید به بعضی از مفاهیم و به بعضی از رابطه های انسانی نگاه کنیم و نمیتوانیم روابط ساده ای رو فقط نکنیم Um, Mr. Mojabi says that he wants to talk about his own personal experiences and then relate it to the more uh, general one. He says that before the revolution, he used to write uh, mainly short stories and poetry and dabbled in journalism. Uh, but w after the revolution, it felt that uh, there were problems, there were dilemmas within the society which needed closer attention or more specific, uh, more detailed but, بعد از انقلاب مسائل برای ما در ابعاد بسیار وسیعی مطرح شد مثلا اگر دموکراسی مطرح میشد دموکراسی به چه معنای آزادی برای کی تا چه حد چگونه در چه ارتباطی یا قدرت اگر مطرح میشد قدرت افکار عمومی چیه قدرت حاکم اقتصادی چیه قدرت سیاسی چیه اینا با هم چه ارتباطی دارند بنابراین مسئله دیگه فقط کلمات نبودن و مفاهیم ساده نبودن بلکه دنیای در هم بافتی پیچیده بودند که Uh, he says that after uh, the revolution, uh, the problems or uh, uh, the phenomena that they were faced with uh, uh, had gained uh, amazing dimensions. So, for example, if you talked about democracy and freedom, then you would have to also answer freedom for who, in what form, in what shape, what relations it had. Or if you were talking about um, um, uh, 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 the dominant uh, power, uh, then you had to uh, talk about various aspects of what that power meant. So for them, uh, words or uh, more, I don't know, more simple uh, uh, concepts were not enough. They had to pay attention to much more complicated and multi-leveled problems in their writing. <laughs> انگار از یک دنیای ساده ما به طرف یک دنیای پیچیده پرتاب شده بودیم و من در این دنیا فکر میکنم که چند صدایی بودن میتوانست به کمک ما بیاد چند صدایی بودن من به دو تعبیر میگیرم یک چند صدایی بین هست که انواع صداها محجح بشن و با همدیگه بحث کنن و از توی یک چیزی دارد بیرون که خواهنده فقط در نهایت داورش باشه دوم این که بعضی صداها که پیش از این به گوش نمیرسیده اونا مطرح شدن مثل صدای زنان، صدای کودکان، صدای فقیران، صدای مجرودان و صدای تبعید شدگان و امسادگان. اوکی، او که فیلنگ باید، این سیمد از اگر در این دنیا بسیاری 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 was very important. One uh, aspect of this uh, polyphony uh, was um, multivocality, was uh, the existence of different voices that could um, sort of uh, enter a dialogue with one another. But the other aspect of it was to bring into attention voices that had been absent before, like the voices of women, children, the have-nots, uh, those in exile. Uh, those voices had also to come into literature. 
بنابراین من به طور موازی هم به درون ذهن خودم داشتم نگاه میکردم و هم به درون جامعه خودم و اینا در ترکیب این دوتا بود که رمان خرق میشد یعنی همونجور که مولوی میگه تا نیابم اون چه در مغز من است یک زمانی سر نخارم روز و شب یکی از معانی هنر به هر حال کاویدن درون ذهن و تعمل در روح آفریننده است اما در این حال وقایی بیرون با چنان شتابی عبور میکرد در از برابر این ذهن که ناگزیر درگیری این دوتا با همدیگه به ساختن رمان های نوحگانهی که من نوشتم منجر شد. Uh, he says that parallel, uh, he, he had to sort of make a parallel move. On one hand, he had to uh, try to discover and rediscover his own inner world. So he constantly had to look into his own personal and inner voice. And on the other hand, he had to sort of um, uh, deal with the tension between this inner world and the world outside, deal with both of them at the same time. And he brought a fantastic line from one of our most beloved classical poems, whom I will not uh, try to translate. But the main aspect of it is the, the fact that you cannot express or articulate yourself without expressing the inner world. But he said that on the other hand, the outside world was moving so fast with such a speed, you know, that he had to try to at the same time catch up with it. And the product of uh, this sort of uh, uh, juxtaposition of the inner world and the outside world was, the result of it was uh, the were the nine novels that he wrote after the revolution. در پایان می‌خواستم توضیح بدم در مورد این سوال خانم سانتاک که چه مشخصه‌ای رمان ایرانی داره به نظر من در اینکه این مکانیسمی که من گفتم این انگار همه جا هست اما به ازای هر فرهنگی هر نوع سنت فرهنگی و نوع مردمی که در یک منطقه زیست میکنند و زبانی که اونا بهش تکلم میکنند و حافظه تاریخیشان طبیعتا یه مقدار شکل بومی میگیره اگرچه ما برای این بومی بودن اونقدرها تاکید نمیکنیم اما به هر حال ناگزیر این شکل بومی تو آثار ما منعکس میشه و بنابراین یک تکنیک جهانی چیز داره وجود داره he says that uh, at the end, uh, in, in answer to your, in response to your question about um, the specificity of uh, the Iranian novel, he, he says that uh, this mechanism exists everywhere, what he was talking about. But um, within every specific culture, uh, in relationship to that culture's language, uh, culture, and traditions, and historical memory, there is a localized uh, form that each of these works take place. He says that we do not uh, necessarily emphasize upon this localized form, upon this um, uh, for, uh, uh, Persian form, but anyway, it is reflected in the works that we produce. Oh. به هر حال همه اینا تو زبان فارسی اتفاق میفته و ما در سطح زبان و در عمق زبان به دریافت معرفتی از دنیای پیرامونمان میرسیم. He wants to emphasize the way that all of this happens in the Farsi language and so uh, they move constantly from the uh, surface of the language of Farsi into the, the depth of the language. The younger generation. The younger generation. Magazine. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
Do you, do you feel that you are the in, in, simply the inheritor and continuer of the, the traditions that are practiced by people of the older generation who feel that writers your age or younger are looking for something else, or and then specifically about your magazine. Yeah. The خانم سونتاک از سنت رمان صحبت کردن اگر یاد بیاریم که یک سنت چند قرن است فقط رمان ترجیح میدم من راجب سنت روایت حرف بزنیم در زبانهای مختلف حالا چه در غرب و چه در شرق uh, he said that um, before answering your question, uh, he just wanted to say that um, you talked about the novelistic tradition, which is a relatively young tradition. I mean, it's um, a few centuries only uh, young. Um, he would have preferred to talk about the tradition of storytelling or tale telling, which goes far back. حرکت حکایت ها همونطور که در قبل حضور داشتن حکایت های تمثیلی داستان های حیوانات در ادبیات شرق و ایران هم حضور داشته و شاید حتی همزمان بودن حتی داستان های سفرنامه این stories, uh, they had existed in Iran the same way as in <coughs> the West, and sometimes they, they existed simultaneously, side by side. Uh, he feels that uh, certain um, <coughs> poetic tales in Iran, which are very prevalent, in fact, uh, can be uh, sort of equivalent to Western romances. Barhal, shayad yek dore sukun zavani romate kardim dar garne nohda va badesh va tawakufi dar nuh rivayat ya hikayat ya zavani rivayati ijad shode. Montaha. Uh, he feels that they have experienced uh, a literary um, linguistic or literally stagnation uh, in the Middle Ages, in early Middle Ages, and there has been um, and there has been sort of some sort of a pause in um, the storytelling uh, process. به هر حال نوعی واردات از قبل نمیتونه باشه به قول یکی از محققین ما آقای دکتر خورمی این رو به نوعی اینطور نگاه نکنیم که نوعی واردات از قبل هست به ایران و نوع عقب مونده تر هست از نوع ادبیات در قبل uh, both uh, short and long fiction in Iran is not really, has not been imported from the West. It's not an import from the West. 
and Iranian fiction is not the less, um, the more regressive form of um, Western uh, fiction. Kamayin ke man dar hikayatay Irani shegerde ya pish shegerde taghir zaviyedid didam dar بخش حماسی شاهنامه نه بخش اسطوره‌ایش دقیقاً رعایت نوع پلات ارسطویی رو دیدم نوع پلات رالیستی رو دیدم و به نظرم میاد رمان ایرانی به دلیل اینکه برآمده از زبان هست و ساختار زبان و زبان ساختارش در همه ملت‌ها به نوعی تشابهاتی داره ادامه منطقی he feels that in certain uh, classical works of Iranian literature, as in Ferdowsi's Book of Kings, he has seen the similar definitions of um, Aristotelian's Aristotelian plot, or in certain classical uh, Iranian forms, he has seen um, the change in point of view, which is very similar to certain stories in the West. So he feels that the Iranian novel coming out of um, language and literature's base being all language is really a sort of a logical continuation of um, uh, Iran's literary language. She wants to know about you, really. The magazine. Yes. سالهای اخیر در ایران مجلات تخصصی بسیار مورد استقبال قرار گرفتن اصر پنشنبرم یک مجله تخصصی در ادبیات هست با روی کرد به جوانان به خصوص در این در ایران پروفیشنال مجلات تخصصی در ایران مندنی پور از ایدیتر از لیتراری magazine and its main audience, main readers are the youth, are the young people. Ashad Jalet Bashe Barashunke Modarin Majale and Voy Rukata Dar Sante Modernis Rudarin, Modernis Mada Biotiran, Vapo in Nazarke Hata Post Modernis, Edome Mantari Modernis Past, Vain Rudarin Tablet Nipot. Uh, it might be interesting to you that um, in this magazine they have uh, different uh, perspectives on modernism and even the fact that postmodernism is a logical continuation of modernism. Are foreign uh, writers, many foreign writers, translated into Farsi now? Contemporary writers. <laughs> آقای اتانکانی یکی از نویسندگان آمریکایی اولین کتابش چاپ شد ما در شهر شیراز داستانی از ایشون ترجمه کردیم امپریور اف uh, Persian, and when Emperor of the Air was published, you translated uh, you? Uh, a friend of his translated it into Farsi, and he wrote a um, critique of it, 
And this is in Shiraz. It is not in Tehran. و الان می‌بینم که ایشون یکی از نویسندگان بزرگ آمریکاش یا مشهور آمریکا شده. یعنی اون زمان گمنام بودن ایشون. He says that at that time the writer was not well known and now he is one of the ما انقدر شناخت داریم راجع به نویسنده‌های آمریکایی که من میتونم حتی به طور خلاصه اینطور تحلیل بدم که به فرض نوع داستان کارور ترکیبی است از نصر همینگوی و آنهای داستانی آن داستانی چخوف He says that we are so uh, familiar with the American uh, writers that I can talk about how Carver's stories uh, are a amalgamation, a mixture of Hemingway's um, okay, Hemingway's prose uh, as well as um, Chekhov's. The story of the story of Chekhov, a mixture of Hemingway's prose and uh, Chekhov's storytelling. Uh, Carver's stories. I'm going to let you take over from now, and uh, thank you very much for the privilege of this conversation. It's very important that there we find an audience for these uh, writers and for more cultural exchanges. This I'll read yourself. Thank you. <laughs> he says that um, in this five minutes time we have, we can't sing. I don't think it's a bad idea. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Mr. Doratabadi wants to uh, make some comments. اینجوری که میگن در امریکا ادبیات تبدیل شده به یه امروز سبک و اینها تجارتی ما هم اینو شنیدیم که اینطور شده و حال من فکر میرم تلویزیون در غرب طور کلی به ذهن اجازه تمرکز نمیده نه تمرکز آفریدن و نه تمرکز پذیرفتن آفرینش و من حبتا متخصص اون امور نیستم ولی همطور که بیمینم فکر کنم دیگه خاننده ادبیات تربیت نمیشه حتی به طور کلی در دنیا He thinks that in the world today, we don't um, educate um, literary readers anymore. اما در ایران خوشبختانه ما هنوز اونقدر پیشرفت نکردیم و تلویزیون ما هم تماشا کردیم. 
و تلویزیون ما هم ریتمش مثل خود ماست همچین کاماس کاماس اینا برکت میکنه و و این و این این بمباران ذهنی که در غرب به وسیله تلویزیون انجام میگیره در کشور ما هنوز انجام نمیگیره و بر حال از جهات دیگه ممکنه ذهن مردم ما بمباران بشه ولی به این صورت نیست در نتیجه اونها هنوز فرصت دارن که به کتاب عنوان امر جدی نگاه بکنن یکی از دلایل این هم که جای شعر امشب خالی بود همین وقتی شما رو کرد جای شعر هست بعد نکته دیگری که خیلی مهمه که ما بون اشاره بکنیم مسئله سنت کتاب در ایران من نمیدونم در قرب خب البته هست اینجا متا در ایران کتاب امر مقدسی است بله ما در ما هم در سنت به اصطلاح سیاسی هم در سنت مذهبی برای کتاب یک ارج خاصی قائل هستیم و بودیم و امر تاریخ نویسی در ایران و ثبت حقیقت اونقدر همیشه جدی بوده که به همون جدیت هم نابود شده نگه بداره و از یک طرف عناصر و مخرب سعی میکنن با قطع کردن کتاب با از بین بردن کتاب با سوزاندن و و شستن کتاب در قبل این این سنت تداوم رودیه و و فرهنگ ملت رو چه بکنه نابود و در واقع تاریخ فرهنگ ایران در یک جدال عجیب خلاصه میشه که عرصه اون کتاب هست به اعتباری که در هر صورت کتاب در ایران مقدس است 
Uh, he says that um, book in Iran become the standard of a continuous break and continuity in the Iranian culture. While through books we try to keep the continuity of uh, this culture, there are destructive elements uh, within our society who through destroying books try to sort of con continuously bring about this break and destruction. And so books become the arena where this constant uh, struggle between continuity and break uh, sort of is fought. Uh, uh, famous last words یعنی یک نظر مشابه در مثل آقای دیاتابودی شاید دوستان دیگه اینی که برای ما نوشتن امری حیاتی است به دلیلی که با نوشتن هویت پیدا میکنیم و با شناختن هویت خود به هویت دیگران پی میبریم و با شناختن هویت دیگران ایجاد ارتباط ذهنی میکنیم با دیگران نه به این معنا که تاثیر بذاریم رو اونها بلکه اونها رو بشناسیم و وقتی بشناسیم این پیوندها گسترش پیدا میکنه و تبدیل میشه به یک ارتباط وسیع‌تر و حتی از حوزه مملکت هم فراتر میره بعد ادبیات وسیله میشه برای پیوند فرهنگ های مختلف بنابراین نوشتن برای ما امری نیست که یه بیزینس باشه یه شغل باشه یه محل درآمد یا سرگرمی باشه بلکه اصلا وسیله ای برای هویت یافتن ما شناختن خودمان فرهنگمان و ملتمان و دنیاست و این نه اینکه ما با کوشش و علاقه به طرف این قضیه میریم ما ناگزیر از این قضیه هستیم یعنی هر کسی که کار ادبی میکنه ناگزیر از این تلاش است برای اینکه اگر بنا بود که با معالندیشی و با حسابگری آدم طرف این قضیه بره اونقدر موانع وجود داره که در آغاز راه ممکنه که پشیمان بشه Uh, writing is uh, essential, it's crucial, because we acquire our own identity uh, through writing, and through acquiring this identity, then we discover others, and that doesn't mean that we try to influence or change others, but we try to understand others. And this um, discourse, this understanding or discovery of others goes beyond the boundaries of ourselves or our country, and it is through these means that we create relationships um, Uh, with others and with the world. And he also emphasizes upon the fact that for them, writing is not just a job and a business. If it were so, there would be many obstacles in their way. But it is a means of discovery and understanding, and they are irresistibly, <coughs> and I would like to say irretrievably, uh, drawn to it. He's a true poet. یه نکته من دارم میخواست ارز کنم ادبیات محاصر ایران در حال حاضر انقدر شکوفایی داره که بولوان ادبیات بهش نگاه بشه نه فقط یک موضوع سیاسی یک چیز یا یک سوژه این ثابت کردنش من میدونم بسیار سخته و شاید زمانی درخششش دیده بشه که ما نباشیم. Mr. Mandenpour says that uh, he wants to emphasize one point and that 
is that Iranian literature today is in such a state of blossoming and bloom that it should be regarded uh, for its own sake, not as a political um, or, or as just a subject or just um, something to be used. And he says that it must might be difficult to prove this point. Uh, and of course, he made a rather just exaggerated, pessimistic point that um, maybe it will be proved when we are not in this world anymore. This would be a good place to end, and we hope you will be in this world for many, many other places. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Hamid Dabashi. I'm from Columbia University. And I would like to add my voice to uh, Asia Society and Pan American Center welcoming this distinguished panel of writers from Iran. I have a much uh, simpler and perhaps even uh, more pleasant task than my distinguished colleague, Professor Nafisi, which is to moderate uh, a series of readings from the work of fiction of these uh, distinguished uh, writers. Namely, I will try to uh, navigate your way into what they do best, work of fiction. Uh, the uh, splendid uh, group of uh, a selection of writings that we have for you is as follows. We will begin by uh, Mr. Dolatabadi reading from his monumental achievement, 10-volume work of Kelidar. And uh, from there, we will uh, move on to a selection from Shahriyar Mandanipur. Uh, the translation is by Kamran Rastegar, a doctoral candidate from Columbia University. And it will, the translation will be read by Nahid Racklin, novelist and pen member. The selection after that by Mr. Javad Mujabi is uh, the translation is by Chad Kia, doctoral candidate from Columbia University. And the English translation will be read by Karen Kennerly, writer and pen member. Finally, the selection that will be read by Mr. Stefan Lu, the translation is by Nuri Allah, and it will be read by Nahid Muzaffari, Iranian scholar. Uh, now we'll start with uh, Mr. Dolatobadi's selection. Uh, for those of you, 
and that's perhaps overwhelming majority of you who have not read the 10 volume <laughs> work of Kelly there. Let me give you a very brief, very brief, brief, because time is very, very short, a description of where in the novel Mr. Dolat Abadi has decided to read. Uh, what he's going to read comes from in a very uh, a critical moment in the novel, which is at its uh, most uh, emotionally depleted uh, uh, period. The main character that you will come to know, his name is Nada Ali. Nada Ali has just killed a man. And because he was not sure if he actually killed the person that he had intended to kill, he had to go and exhume, disinter the body and uh, with, uh, with a grave digger. And that has been a profoundly disturbing experience for him because he sees when he exhumes the body, he sees the face of the, uh, of the dead person, uh, half of it blown away by his bullets, and uh, through the sockets of his eyes, a snake comes out, which ends up killing the uh, grave digger who had helped him exhume uh, the body. Uh, there is not much time, so I don't know how much of it he will go uh, on, he can actually read. But uh, the person that he has killed has been involved in a love affair with a cousin of Nada Ali, and uh, who is now equally half crazed because his, his, uh, the man he has, she loves has been, has been killed. Uh, it is a critical moment in the novel because the death of Madyar, the person that Nada Ali has killed, is uh, extremely crucial for the chief protagonist of the novel, uh, 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 Gol Muhammad, and his decision to abandon his petty life and, in fact, lead a revolutionary movement. Uh, the set of the novel, setting of the novel is in 1940s. The location is in Khorasan, the greater Khorasan, the northwestern, uh, northeastern part of Iran. And uh, this uh, selection comes from the fourth chapter of the first volume. خیلی متشکرم آقای دکتر در باشون رو هم بزنم نادالی تنش می لرزد لرزهی پنهانی در بافت اصفها آرام نگرفته است آرام نتوانسته بگیرد به چار گوشلی بازتاخته اسب به آخر یل داده و خود به زیر چادر خزیده پناه برده مادر را همچنان بی جواب گذاشته است دو روز و دو شب شاید هم بیشتر زمان را گم کرده است خاموش و هوش باخته گورستان در روح نادلی جوان حفره‌ای باز کرده است مدیار دیگر نه در گور که در روح او خفته است مدیار و گورکن یک جا در روح او دفنند اولین قتل آزمون کشتار بسیار کرده بود اما خود کشتار این اولین بود و گمان میبرم آخرین هم سر دارد میترکد پریشان میشود چشمها در کاسها جای نمیگیرند دست ها می درزند گفتگوی باخیش آرامش نمی گذارد هر کلام خاموش نیشتری است که در قلبش می نشیند کابوس خدای من خدای من مردی را کشتم 
جوانی را کشتم او دیگر نیست زنده نیست عجیب نیست این چرا من او را کشتم من گورکن را هم کشتم آن سیاه روزا هم من کشتم مادر برایش چای آورد چای و شیر گرم با نیمتایی نان برشته نادلی کاسه شیر را برداشت و همچنان ایستاده سرکشید نان و چای را پس زد ما سلطان سینی را با خود به اتاق برد بار دیگر نادلی زیر تاق ایوان برا افتاد گام ها بلند و بیتاب از نیش خورشید تا حال که پلاس آفتاب بر همه جا گسترده بود نادلی داشت قدم میزد بیمار به تن و به جان در ستیز با خود سر تا سر ایوان را میرفت و باز میگشت دمی به درنگی کوتاه کنار ستون میستاد ندانسته به دور خود میچرخید و باز به راه میافتاد کلاف در هم روح یخ زده بود فشار دندان بر دندان نگاه خیره به جان به آنچه در جان میگذشت جان مگو نیزاری آشفته در گرداد استخانها چرا زوزه میکشند خوشمان Dulatabadi actually starting from the beginning of the chapter, then he jumped an inter, uh, internal dialogue. Uh, but I'm going to, for you to have a, a feeling of the uh, uh, chapter, actually go uh, read straight through for about uh, two pages of, uh, of, the, this, of this chapter. Again, remember that the preceding chapter is where Nod Ali has uh, exhumed the body of the person that he has killed and he has seen this horrific scene that for the rest of his life he's, he's not going to uh, forget it. Nad Ali was trembling. A hidden kind of trembling was in the very fabric of his nerves. He has not calmed down yet. He has not been able to calm himself down. He, he returned in a hurry to Chargoshli. Let loose his horse into the stable and slip into his tent, seeking a haven. He was yet to answer his mother. Two days and two nights, maybe even more. He has lost trace of time, silent and unconscious of himself. The graveyard has dug a hole in the young Nodali's soul. It is as if Madiar is laying out, though not in his grave, but in Nodali's soul. Madiar, his grave, and the grave digger are all buried in Nodali's soul the first murder. He had experienced the battlefield before, but the actual killing itself, this was the first time. And I think the last time too. The head is exploding, bursting into pieces. The eyes cannot be contained in their socket. The hands are trembling. The conversation with himself was not leaving him in peace. Every silent sentence was like a dagger sitting in his heart. The nightmare of all. My God, my God, I have killed a man. I have killed a young man. He is no longer. He is not alive. 
Isn't this strange? But why? I have killed them. I have killed the gravedigger too. I have killed that miserable wretch too. No. No, I did not kill the gravedigger. The gravedigger killed himself. He himself killed himself. I have killed him too. I did not kill him. His own children killed him. His wife, his wretchedness killed him. That's not it. That is not it. Had I not seen it fit, I would not have gone. My whim killed him. My heart, my pride, my arrogance killed him. He himself did it. Had he not come to be the bearer of good news, he would not have been killed. But it was I who had promised him the reward for this good news. I, good, I could have dismissed him. I could have thrown him out. I could have turned him away from me. I could have stopped playing this game. I could have dissuaded him. I could not have. I could not possibly have. How could I? He tempted me. He led me to commit murder. A murder has been committed. No, no. I cannot bear this. I cannot sh shift the blame onto him. I accuse, I'm accused of his death. I have killed him. Am I imagining things? No, that is the truth. Is that all? That's all. Very well. Very well. That's it. But this is my tongue. My heart is not in it. How many years has it been from that night, the night of the graveyard? How many months? How many years? It has not been a year yet, not even a month, not even a week. It was two nights before last. Two nights before last. No, it was the night before last. It was not the night before last. It was this very last night. It was not last night either. It was just a moment ago. It is just about now. It is just about now. I can see the lantern. I can see the grave. A snake. I can see the snake. The forehead, the hair, the stars, the barrel of oil, the oil, the midwife, a cattle of kids. It's night right now, isn't it? It's night. The night, the grave, the snake, all of these, all of them. I can see the horse. Horror, horror, the horror, horror of it all. No news yet? No, no news. The corpses are not decomposed yet? They must be stinking by now. They must have. Oh, what a calamity, what a calamity. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Enough. My heart is collapsing. My chest is exploding. Enough is absolutely enough. His mother brought him some tea, tea and hot milk, and a piece of toasted bread. Nawad Ali picked up the bowl of milk and drank it right there, standing up. He refused the bread and the tea. Mah Sultan took the tray to the other room. Once again, Nad Ali began to pace under the cover of the veranda. His steps, long and impatient, from the pointed edge of the sunrise to now that the lazy paraphernalia of the sunshine was spread all over the place, Nad Ali was walking, sick in his body and sick in his soul, in battle with himself, pacing back and forth the veranda. For an instance, with a little pause, he would delay by the pillar, turning around himself involuntarily and then resuming his pace again. A confused bundle of wool. His soul was frozen, the pressure of teeth upon his teeth, the gaze piercing the soul, searching for what agitated his soul. Don't ask about the soul. A reed field in a tempest. Why are the bones wailing?
I'm just going to read two pages uh, from a long story by uh, Shahriyar Mandani, Mandanipur. Uh, it's a very richly textured atmospheric short story, but unfortunately I have to just read two pages of it because of the limitation of time. But it's basically about three brothers who have been asked by their father to come and live in their grandfather's home after he dies so that the whole family tradition is maintained and they are together. And then a lot of disturbing things begin to develop as the story goes on. But I'll just read the first two, three pages. On the seventh day memorial after the grandfather's death, ignoring the comings and goings of people who were carrying tea and juices to the sitting rooms, its golden scales shimmering, it twisted itself slowly around an orange tree and disappeared into the leaves and branches. But no one saw it other than the younger brother who had the same day returned from abroad. He distractedly followed the ceremonies, and every now and again, he would turn his head and glance at the tree so as to catch a glimpse of the light as, as it reflected of the scaly skin of the snake, but in vain. That night, as the house was emptied of mourners, the father called the three brothers into the grandfather's old room. He had moved all of his things into that room, intending to sleep in grandfather's ornamental bed and to issue instructions for the household from a comfortable chair there. He spoke with exhaustion and determination. All three brothers were from, the day on, from that, that day on to begin to live in the ancestral home or else face the abatement of their monthly allowance. The grandfather, hoping to collect the scattered remains of the family into the location, had decorated this in his, had decreed this in his will. And their father, so as preserved the nearly forgotten family history, also wanted this. The younger brother cried out, waving his effeminate hands above his head, protesting that he had not yet finished his studies abroad. And moreover, the plans may be in the making for his marriage to, to, for his marriage to an acceptable girl much of the same temperament as he. But father only flicked his hand as if to brush something away from before his face and sat upon the chair, closed his eyes and fell asleep. All three brothers, troubled, descended the stone staircase. From the kitchen, the half-burned kindling still made a whistling sound. The older brother said, we must obey, and went in his direction. The house was large, the large sitting rooms and the smaller, and the smaller other rooms, and in between them, atriums and vestibules all inwardly oriented, encircled the courtyard and overlooked the large pool. The father had allocated each of them one wing, exclusive to themselves. The brothers spent the night staring dumbly at the wood rafters of the ceiling and listening to the rustling noises that surrounded them. The next day, the older brother brought his wife 
and property, property to the house. However, the dispute between the other dispute between the other brothers and the father continued. The father would bellow, what's left of us? The Zand clan, clan has become dispersed. You have found wives from every new coming family. What has become of blood, origin, lineage? Where will your children learn our heritage? Good for nothings, fine. Go if you can. I'll give no allowance to a person who would not respect his own father's ancestors. The younger brother murmured, He's gone, he has gone mad. Opium and the death of that 130-year-old bloodsucker of peasants have cracked his skull. I'll bring him to sense, just see. The middle brother was, however, apparently swayed and hoping that the move would be temporary and only so as to appease the fickleness of his father in his old age. In the next week, he brought his things from the apartment that he was renting in the northern part of town. The day after, the sound of his santer and the incantations of his wife arose from their wing of the house. His wife was an, impulsively, was an impulsive and vivacious woman who never rested easily. The cackling of her laughter reached even the, even the attics of the house. The father was be, would bellow, enough, enough you. But then the sound of the musical instrument would only rise louder. And during the day, the wife, more fearless than before, would vanquish the courtyard. The clear panes of the windows and doors of the house would darken at her heavy, languorous, and fecund steps and at the sound of her loud voice, hundreds of sparrows would fly from the footpath in the courtyard. It was she who next saw the snake. Shrieking, she ran through the courtyard. She had seen a rope lying in the middle of the room. As soon as she had bent over to pick it up, the rope, with an insulting disregard, dis disappeared into the folds of the bedding. The father said, she's lying. She's acting up. The middle brother, as he consoled his wife, asked, why in the world do we have to live here? Out of spite, why don't we all just go and buy a new house? We can buy an apartment complex and each take over one floor. The father laughed dryly. Even if there is a snake, what was he doing in the room when he could go to the roof with the pigeons? when there is an orange tree with sparrows in them, and he sat upon the, upon the heart and the smoke of opium rose around him. The younger brother took the father's hunting rifle from the attic, loaded it with a bullet, and as he would <clears throat> whine through his teeth about the loss of an imagery, of Im imaginary college degree and a blue-eyed beloved over the sea, he would sit in ambush under the same orange tree within which he had on that first day glimpsed that golden shimmer. we need to hear from you first, a little bit in Farsi. Yes? And then we'll go on. Okay. 
روز هفتم پدر بزرگ بی به رفت آمد کسانی که چای و شربت به پنج ها می بردن. با شعشعه زرکی فرسایش آرام دور نارنجی پیچید و لای شاخ و برگ آن ناپدید شد اما هیچ کس جز برادر کوچکتر کمان روز از خارج رسیده بود ندیدش او با چشمهایی که از بیخوابی و هزار فکر دیگر دو کاسه شقایق بودند ناشیانه و کلافه مراسم را دنبال میکرد و از گاهی سر برمیگردان و به درخت نارنج ظلم میزد تا شاید باز انعکاس پولکی ما را ببیند و ندید شبانگاه که خانه از یقیار توهی شد پدر هر سه برادر را به اتاق پدر بزرگ فراخواند خودش قبلا همه وسایلش را به آنجا منتقل کرده بود قرار داشت روی تخت خواب منبتی پدر بزرگ بخوابد و بر صندلی راحتی همو فرمانهای خانه را صادر کند معتقد و خسته حرف زد هر سه برادر از آن پس میبایست در خانه اجدادی ساکن شوند و گرنه مقرری ماهانشان قطع میشد پدر بزرگ به جبران عدم حضورش در آن سرا و تا اینکه باقی مانده خاندان متفرق یک جا گرداید چنین وصیت کرده بود و او هم که پدرشان بود برای حفظ منش رو به فراموشی اجداد چنین میخواست برادر کوچکتر فریاد کشید دستهای زنانش را بالای سر تکان تکان داد که تحصیلش در خارج ناتمام است و گذشته از این صدایش را پایین آورد شاید قصد ازدواج داشته باشد با دختری مقبول و هم فکر خودش اما پدر به دستش حرکتی داد چنان که بخواهد به آرامی چیزی را از پیش رویش کنار بزند و نشسته بر همان صندلی چشمهایش را بست و به خواب رفت. هر سه برادر حیران از پله های سنگی پایین آمدند. در اجاقهای آشپسخانه دنگال هنوز هیمه های نیم سوز سوسو می زدند. I'm Karen Kennerly, and um, I'm the only non-Farsi speaker reading in English. Therefore, um, I, uh, I will be reading a short story of Jamad, um, of Mr. Mojabi, but Mojabi, but I think, um, Nahid, maybe I could ask for your help. Perhaps you would want to say a few words about the story to the audience before you read your part from Farsi, and maybe somebody could translate. و بعد اینا قاچاقچی ها میبرن به یه منطقه دیگه که در اونجا سالها پیش این پدر ترانی که نبینا شده خانه اون رقیب خوش آتسته و حالا 
اون رقیب داره انتقام میگیره یعنی حریف حریفی که در واقع با این رقابتش داره انتقام میگیره این پدر کور میاره و بهش میگه که خب خوش آمدی اینا بعد میگه قضا میخوری این میگه آره میگه قضا بهش بریز این چون نابیناست فکر میکنه که حالا بعد قضا لمس کنه ولی قضایی در کنیست عدای قضا آورده میرن مجموعه میرن ولی خالیه بعد میبینی که قضایی در کنیست بعد میگه که پشتی بده ولی پشتی در کنیست این پرت میشه ولی به تجریش یاد میگه که یک بازیه در واقع یک چیز موهومی وجود داره که این باید قضای موهوم بخوره به دیوار موهوم پشت بده شربت های موهوم نوشه جان کنه و همینطور در یک وضعیت کاملا تازه و جلی و خیالی قرار بگیره و این خودش چنان در موضع ضعف میبینی که به تمام این بازی دروغین تن در میده و در نهایت اون مردی که اینه به دستورش اسیر کردن اینه از یک پرتگاه دستور میده که پرت من پایین و به پسرش اون به پسر اون مرد نابینا میگه که تو پس از این ندیم ما خواهی بود اما به زبان تو هیچگاه احتیاجی نیست نه متش هست اونجا I uh, I don't know the story. I'm going to, and I wasn't paying attention to Google. Uh, but uh, the uh, the gist of the uh, uh, event is between a blind man who is uh, not invited to a party, and then the host is pretending to offer uh, uh, food. And it takes a while for the blind guest to find out that there is no food involved. And in fact, uh, uh, he has to, because of being in a position of weakness, he has to pretend and go, uh, get along with the, with the game of uh, uh, participating in this imaginary feast, at the conclusion of which uh, then he's, uh, he's killed, and then the son of the victim blind uh, a person is told that from that moment onward, uh, his tongue is no longer needed, namely he doesn't need to talk. Uh, no, he, he said for me to read first, and then he will, we've now reversed the order of languages. Is that what you wanted? You. Yes, he wants Thank me to go first. So. It's called, in English, it's called The Feast of Sharks. And I'll be reading um, uh, most of the story. I've made a few cuts for the sake of time, um, but, but here and there. So it's a slightly abridged version of the story. I hope it works. We left Ashk village in the early evening, my father and I, and others. They had tied my father's hands so he wouldn't escape. Before I was able uh, to understand their intention, I was caught and beaten. I wanted to run away, but it didn't work. I became a prisoner. They tied my hands too and put us in a green jeep. We collapsed on the back seat. Father and I asked why, but no one answered. From their conversation, we understood that they had come from the area of Kange and Mahmule, of fish and guns and palms. My father probably knew from the bumps that we were going on the old road. Only smugglers and cutthroats use this road. Until last summer, father went constantly back and forth on this same road, when suddenly he lost his eyesight and became a recluse. As soon as he had been awakened and had heard their voices, he shouted with surprise and fear, They've come. He had been waiting for them. 
Now he was straining to hear where they were taking us. The sun became hotter and still hotter. A powder of dust settled on our hands and faces. And after a while, sweat and dirt formed a mask. It burned to keep our eyelids open. No one was speaking. Several times when Father asked something, the stranger hit him. Then the jeep stopped. The men went out and splashed their faces with water and relieved themselves. While they were gone, Father asked me about recognizable signs along the road and then fell into a deep silence. I tried to sleep, not to think about those, not to think about who these people were and where they were taking us. But the jeep constantly threw us back and forth, and my eyes kept opening with panic. Somewhere, I gotta take a leak. Shut your trap, worthless dump. It was he who had hit me with a button. Pointed at something to the man next to him. I looked and saw a monotree and circle of stones. We all got out. They drank water, pissed behind the tree, and got back into the jeep. I could see them wolfing down their food. Then they got drowsy. When the driver was about to lay his head on the steering wheel, he said with a smirk, don't go anywhere, you'll get lost. The sun, like a suspended oven over our heads, was broiling. Father was drenched in sweat. He was close to passing out. He headed for the well. As soon as he felt the stones of the edge, he said, this is Mukhtar's well. He found the wheel and turned it. And he said, I guess they're taking us to Chakbar. When we passed the fork in the road, see if we are going to go east or west. He brought the bucket up and we drank, pouring the rest of it over our heads to revive us. Then we got back into the Jeep. The desert shimmered, seeming far off and then near. At the fork, we turned west, I told Father. He said quietly, Telahu, that's what I was afraid of. I knew that place well. In his trips, Father always anchored there, where he and his, where he and his partners colluded and made their plans. The first time I went to Telahu, I was five, and my father was ten years younger than he is now. We had traveled part of the way with caravans, on the third day, near noon, we reached Telahu. It was the hunting season, and Father shot a fawn, and we roasted it. That night, we came to the village of Ashk and stayed there until yesterday, when we were plucked out, and now again, we were on our way to the station. Ten years seemed like a day. It was as though it was one hour ago that we had reached it. I was five years old and he was a young, strong man. An hour passed, and he was blind, and I was dazed with my hands tied. The other two were lying down under the shade. The heat reigned in blind brightness. Father said, if you are certain they're asleep, we could take a walk. I'm not sure, but where would we go? I know all these roads, I know them well. I wish you had brought me with you. I didn't want you to get corrupted by my work, although it didn't make a difference. Now we're here, and everything is worse. When the heat subsided, we started off again. We drove the whole night, and at dawn we arrived, and at dawn we arrived. They pushed us, taking us to the platforms, which were made of stones and plaster under the palm trees. 
The lookout was a continuous passageway from Mayum Fort to the breakwater. The wind, the smell of wet canvas, dead fish, and tobacco was the same as that which had overwhelmed our sleep and our wakefulness. I heard an ah, but I don't know if it came from my father or from me. Someone who had been sitting in the dark got up and came to stand in the light of the fire. He was an old man, the same age as my father, with dark eyes and a mustache yellowed with smoke. Welcome, Zaire. His tone was neither friendly nor hostile. Father did not answer. He said, Kaher, so that I could hear. He had told me about him. The old man said, you are tired, come and sit with us. He went and sat on the platform. They sat father down on the sand below the platform. His head was parallel with Kaher's feet. Kaher said, bring him a pillow, lie back. The servant who had made father sit down pretended to put a pillow behind him. He put his hands on his shoulders. Father went to lean and fell backwards. He stayed that way like an upside down turtle. No one laughed. I got angry. I wanted to protest, but one of those present pulled out his knife and gestured that he would cut my tongue out. I knew that he would do it. He lifted father and sat him upright. Okay, lean back. Father with difficulty leaned back as though he were leaning on a cushion. Bring him a drink. A servant came forward and pretended that he was bringing a tray with a pitcher on it. Be careful not to spill. Here you go. What is it? Pomegranate juice. No, thank you. I'd like some water. Kaher said, not possible. Zaire Katang, you can't refuse hospitality.